Drabble Classics, a weekly podcast featuring archived episodes of the Drabblecast drawn from the vault and injected with reanimation serum for your listening pleasure. Edited by Charity Hilton. Enjoy. Welcome back to Drabble Classics. We're taking some time to remember Yuji Foster and the many amazing stories she contributed to the Drabblecast. This week, Either a really bad trip or an encounter with God or the devil or something like Cthulhu at the end of the universe. My friends and I are listening to this together with you, so stick around at the end and we'll have a conversation about the story. I'm Charity Helton, and this is Drabblecast 128 from September 2nd, 2009. Let's listen. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 128. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, had a big trip from Baltimore to southern Georgia this weekend. 14 hours to be exact. I tactically maneuvered my way out of driving most of it by producing this week's entire story in the car on the road. And with all that free time on I-95, this week's story turned out to be special, more of an audio drama than what you usually hear on the show, with lots of guest voices, music, and effects. To that extent, I wanted to dedicate this episode to Monica Vasey, my co-traveler, who sucked it up and kept on trucking, allowing me the time to tinker with the production. First, though, to wet your whistle, a drabble. This week's 100-word story comes to us from Michael Young, and it's called The Story. Michael's had several travels on our show, probably the most of any one person. You can find them in episodes 67, 73, and 114. Hope you enjoy. The universe happened. The Big Bang, inflation, stars, supernovas, but none of it mattered. No one cared. All of it was as meaningless as which bubble popped in the head of a pint of beer sitting alone on a bar. Then life happened. It struggled, survived, and developed intelligence. The intelligence observed, understood, predicted, and even manipulated matter. Suddenly, everything mattered. Observation gave universal meaning. Then, a certain solar system bubble popped, as bubbles tend to do. As the remains left behind seeped back into the universal muck, it took all life and all intelligence with it. Nothing mattered again. Damn you, bubbles. So, the theme of this week's show, as well as the name of this week's story, is The End of the Universe. Our story comes from Yuji Foster, whose work regulars of the show are no doubt familiar with. Yuji calls home a mildly haunted, fey-infested house in Metro Atlanta that she shares with her husband Matthew and her pet skunk, Hobkin. Her publication credits number over 100 and includes stories in realms of fantasy, Interzone, Orson Scott Card's intergalactic medicine show, Bane's Universe, Fantasy Magazine, and Cricket. 
her short story collection, Returning My Sister's Face and Other Far Eastern Tales of Whimsy and Malice, is now out from Norolana Books. Visit her online at www.ugfoster.com or visit her at DragonCon this weekend, like we plan on doing. As I mentioned before, I've produced this story as a full-blown space adventure audio drama, and we have several very talented people playing the various characters in the story. In order of appearance, the lovely and clever Kim the comic book goddess, who is host and the woman behind the Geek Pantheon podcasts, and Your Moment of Kim, which is a finalist in the Parsec Awards this year for Best Speculative Fiction Comedy Parody Podcast. She's playing the character of Rays. The character of Freeloader is played by one of my favorite story readers on the net, Ray Sizemore. Ray's from Norwalk, Ohio, and you can find him online as a guest narrator at starshipsofa.com, as well as his own unevenly maintained blog-slash-podcast at xraysvisions.wordpress.com. Rish Outfield of the fabulous Doonstief audio fiction podcast, a great show that you should be subscribed to, is playing the character of Bomb. And finally, podcast novelist Abby Hilton, author of the Parsec finalist The Prophet of Panamandora, is playing Jondi. You can find all of their info in our show notes. So, without further ado, The End of the Universe by Yuji Foster. Tay felt like he had junkie fever all over again. The itch in his skull that made him want to peel back bone and rasp his fingernails over trembling gray matter. Time is an hourglass filled with frosty molasses and a film of damp slicking the meat of his hands. But he'd been clean, hadn't touched a pill or lit up in months. He checked the system again for the hundredth zillionth time. The master display registers were all green. Everything had been checked and double-checked. The tests had run and the spells were programmed and compiled. There was nothing left to do. Trilling klaxons shrieked through the lab. Even though he'd been expecting them, Tay's heart jolted to a thrumming sprint in his chest. Relief, anxiety, and excitement roiled in his stomach, sending the taste of bile burning up his throat. The waiting was over. Tay slapped the silencer buttons. Places, everyone! This is it! Without the wailing alarms, the air felt light, too light to breathe. He forced himself to suck in a breath, exhale, and gulp in another. Beside him, rays flicked switches, her blonde dreadlocks swinging as she tweaked dials and controls. In the overlight air, her hair seemed to seethe and writhe like fuzzy serpents. Tay remembered an old tale he'd heard about a snake-haired woman that turned men to stone. True, Ray's had a certain stiffening effect on him, but he'd always taken the story as being more literal. Besides, Ray's snake locks were each adorned with a different colored crucifix, an expression of piety as well as fashion. No self-respecting serpent would have tolerated that indignity. With a jaw-throbbing hum, Tay's boots activated. The foot he'd raised clanged back on the metal floor. Raise, pull it back, I can't move. Sorry. Her fingers tapped in commands. Ambulatory once more, Tay clumped to the control stations. We have atmosphere? 
confirm on Atmel. Freeloader's silver eyepieces glinted in the white, halogescent lights as he surveyed the outputted data. His movements, like his speech, were precise. An ironic turnabout, he kept himself aloof from human emotions and foibles, his reserve only breached during the interface sessions he shared with the AI. Next to him, Baum nodded. Clear. His voice rumbled low and gravelly through his barrel-wide chest. Countdown commencing. The computer announced. Termination of the universe in 10, 9, 8. Eight seconds until the end of everything. No Earth, no galaxy, no existence. A cosmic joke, or just bad math. There was a flaw in the makeup of reality that manifested every 32,000 years. The rift was like a gap in the celestial highway, a pothole. When hit, it threw everything out of whack, shredding reality in its wake. But there was a fix. Symbols, rituals, and equations older than the planet, maybe as old as the universe itself, that kept time and space from derailing over that bump. Tay imagined Neanderthal men chanting around a fire while the world fell to pieces around them. Maybe the dinosaurs had been in on it, roaring and stomping the crucial symbols and sounds, safe in a leafy circle of protection. And before them, aliens, perhaps. Ancient consciousnesses performing the necessary structures and forms to smooth the universal pathway. Have we got visuals? He called. I'm on it. The viewer flashed up. Blackness filled the wide screen, punctuated by motley dots of light. Six, five, four. The viewer snapped into focus, and the whole galaxy appeared. Spiraling galactic arms laden with starry matter sharpened into clarity. They encircled a central congestion of brightness spreading in waves from the nexus. Stasis field? A sharp click sounded, and Baum stuck his fist, thumb up, in the air. Three, two, one, termination. Tay felt a ripple beneath his feet as the field engaged and separated their self-contained dome from everything of the outside world. He was faintly disappointed. He'd expected the end of the universe to feel different, more spectacular. Look, Ray's pointed. Overhead, a slash of carmine split the creamy stars. The rift widened, shivering off splashes of glowing orange and seething yellow. It's true. Freeloader stared at the screen, his mouth slack. I didn't believe. Mr. Freeloader, your station, Tay snapped. The ritualist's cap gleamed quicksilver as he scanned the scrolling readings. His palm stroked the tactile strip on the interface panel, the exchange of data reassuring computer and ritualist alike. Spell is at normal parameters. In the viewer, the gash turned into a tear. Dazzling white light overwhelmed the lesser, fiery shades until Tay's eyes watered. Raze! On it. Just prescient enough to discomfort, she had anticipated him. The viewer dimmed. In the center of the brilliance, a flicker of shadow obscured the wounded vista. It grew, tendrils of black spreading like a drop of ink in water, eating away the milky swirl. 
Tay gripped the console until his knuckles whitened. The records had been vague on this part, but the protective spells, the runes and equations running in the computer would keep them whole, isolated from the destruction or the chaos or the nothingness, whatever might happen. He hoped. Rays dropped to her knees, tears streaming from her eyes. Holy father of creation. She abased herself before the viewer, a litany of prayers spilling from her lips. Rays. It's God. She sobbed. Can't you see him? The viewer showed the swelling black nothingness and nothing more. Freeloader, confirm our status, Tay called. The ritualist whimpered at his console. <laughs> Tay clomped double speed to him. What's the matter? Is it the binary cascade again? I thought I debugged it. It's him. Freeloader moaned. The great destroyer, the deceiver. He covered his head with both arms. <laughs> the computer shrilled as the movement yanked Freeloader's interface connections free. A blue light blinked on the tower. Mr. Freeloader, attend your station. The ritualist giggled. <laughs> My station. He reached out. My damnation. <laughs> Tay lunged, racing to slap aside Freeloader's hand, but the other man was faster. One silver-tipped finger knocked into the little red switch marked with a simple O on one side and an I on the other. With a whine, the systems began powering down. No! Electromagnets released, and Tay's momentum took him past the AI station in a helpless spiral of freefall. Freeloader spun past him, cackling. Lunatic tears hung in the air, shed from his eyes, and suspended like soft jewels in the zero gravity. Bomb! Emergency reboot! Tay writhed, struggling to catch hold of anything solid that would stop his spin. The huge man stood with his thick legs braced against two bolted-down consoles. He spread his arms in a wide embrace. Tay thunked into a steel hub wound with slick cables and delicate fiber contacts. He seized a handful of strut and cord just as the lights went out. The only illumination now, the viewer's luminous glow. Nirvana. Bomb whispered. A beatific smile spread across the ugly man's face in the shadowed crimson. Tay's breath billowed out in a mist of condensation. Despite all the insulation in the dome, the temperature was plummeting. To fall so quickly, it had to be as cold as space outside. Was there an atmosphere anymore? Did the mountain the dome rested on still exist? He'd anticipated that heat and light, air, gravity even, might go haywire, so he'd programmed environmental safeties with multiple redundancies for each subsystem. But the computer could only protect them if it was on. Tay craned his neck to the viewer. The emptiness had eaten away more than half the image. We're damned, Freeloader moaned. Tay ignored him, his teeth chattering in the now biting cold. The AI station, power grid, manual ports, and hard boot switch was across the room, with Bomb anchored between them. Out of my way, Bomb. Tay gathered his legs against the strut and launched himself at the console. 
Instead of ducking, Baum turned, his arms still outstretched. Tay could neither slow nor turn. The giant man plucked him out of the air like a child from a swing as he flew by. Tay's momentum knocked Baum out of his stance, and they drifted. Don't struggle, Baum murmured. Enlightenment comes with acceptance. What are you babbling about? Tay fought to break the other man's hold, but before Baum had hooked up with Freeloader and joined the team, he'd worked the streets as an enforcer. Tay was outsized, outmatched, and outmuscled. It is Nirvana. It's not, you thick wit. It's the end of the universe. Can't you feel the cold? It is not cold. Tay twisted and strained, but Baum might as well have been a stone block for all the effect it had. Listen to me. Rays and Freeloader are hallucinating. We have to power everything back up and convince the AI to come online. The AI is not offline, Baum said. He swiveled Tay like a rag doll until he faced the viewer. Look. The blackness continued to eat a swath through the galaxy. It's growing. We're running out of time. Baum held him tight, pressing Tay against his chest. How is the viewer powered? He murmured. Huh? Tay blinked. The viewer, of course, was also linked to the AI. How could it be on with the computer down? As soon as he thought the question, the light shuddered on, splashing them with bright white. They fell, dragged down by their powered boots. Baum rose to his feet and returned his attention to the viewer. What's going on? Tay asked. Baum neither turned nor answered. The delicate ting of metal striking metal brought Tay twisting around. Behind him, Raze was on her knees, tearing at her hair. Several of the little crucifixes had come loose, pulled down by the floor's magnetic field. Forgive me, father. She sobbed, rocking back and forth. Forgive my sins. Behind him, Freeloader's voice rose in a ragged cry. During Tay and Baum's collision, the ritualist had pulled off his coverall, leaving him naked save for the metal implants modeling his body. He pressed himself into a frenzy against the computer's tactiles. The computer's warning lights flashed as its sensors overloaded. Mr. Freeloader, what the hell are you doing? Piss off. Blood dripped from thin gashes in the ritualist's face, where he dragged the metal tips of his fingers through his flesh. Above him, a face appeared in the viewer, filling it. Eyes that bubbled and overflowed with tears of brackish pus glared out. Jaundiced skin writhed. Boils erupted, sprouting maggots topped with human features. Horribly, the faces were familiar. They wore the likenesses of people Tay had known. His mother, before a cancerous tumor had sucked her life away. The last pusher he'd cut a deal with, spiky derma implant patches bristling from his temple. The counselor in the institution with the sad, disappointed eyes. Twisted lips parted, revealing a mouth filled with rows of needle-thin teeth surrounding a spiraling void. The mouth opened. It was going to devour them. Tay threw his arms up and fell against Baum. The larger man steadied him. Nirvana, he said. Tay peeked at the viewer over his forearm. The face was gone, 
replaced by the spreading abyss. Father, why have you forsaken me? Reza's voice was thick with sobs. She tried to crawl, but her heavy boots pinned her to the floor like an insect half-mashed by a careless giant. Tay stumbled to her. He buried his face in her hair and felt her shudder. Raise, baby, quiet. We're all hallucinating. He held her, breathing her vanilla and clove perfume. She went rigid. Sinner! She screamed. She thrust him away, knocking him off his balance. Tay sprawled, his feet still plastered to the floor. It's because of you that God doesn't love me. Her eyes were wide, frenzied. A slender data stylus appeared in her hand. God won't forgive me! She launched herself at Tay, the stylus pointed at his groin. He struggled to roll, but his boots glued him in place. Bomb was there. He caught Ray's mid-air and held her as she kicked and screamed. The stylus clinked to the floor. Tay dragged himself away with shaking arms. The hatred in Ray's face. He turned his head so he wouldn't have to see it. In the viewer, the scene had changed, monopolized by a new image. Bursts of lightning rayed out from a woman's face, wreathed by a crackle of ozone-lined hair. It was a familiar visage, achingly dear and terrifying. It was Jondi, his wife. Huge, colorless lips curled into a sneer. It's all your fault, you know. I'd still be alive if it wasn't for you. Tay shook his head. This wasn't, couldn't be real. It couldn't be. Tears burned his eyes. How could he believe he'd be able to pull this off? The fate of the universe entrusted to him, the junkie, the loser. He hadn't even been able to save his wife. He pressed his face to the floor. It really was preposterous. More likely that the whole thing, the cause, the calling, everything, was some drug-spawned delusion. After all, that last ride had almost killed him. Forty beads of uncut tempt. Maybe he'd never come down. Maybe this was an elaborate fantasy and he was in a med facility, trapped in the dreamscape of his mind. Baum hummed a tuneless melody. Tay lifted his head. The lightning-maned goddess was gone. The black rift was back, cutting across the galactic view. Around him, the room was in relative calm. Rays sobbed in Baum's arms while Freeloader writhed against the computer's tactiles. The computer flashed red, erring from the brutalization. Freeloader was raping it. The viewer was a sliver of starlight away from complete black emptiness. Tay closed his eyes. He'd always known, deep down, that Jondi blamed him. If only he could have kept his job. If only the AI industry hadn't gone bust. She'd been so sick, in so much pain, and they couldn't afford her meds anymore. They could barely afford to eat. The pain had brought her screaming awake at night. His beautiful, fiery Jondi thrashed and shrieked her life away as he stood by, helpless. And then there'd been the day he'd taken the last of their money and bought Tempt, two vials worth. 
Wreck drugs were cheap, cheaper than food. He fed the tiny red pills to her, one by one, and held the water glass to her lips. She hadn't needed them at all. He'd held her in the darkness, no money for light, wrapped his arms around her, inhaled the scent of her skin. Then she was gone, and Tay left behind. If the universe ended, his desolation and grief would stop. Why was he fighting it? He'd yearned for this, slumped in alleys and on park benches, pursued it as he embraced his new love, murderous and merciful tempt. Tay. It was Jondi. He opened his eyes. His wife's face filled the viewer, but it was no longer terrible. It was just Jondi with her butterscotch hair and the dragonfly tattoo over her cheek. Remember our wedding vows? She asked. Yes. No. Darling. I promised to love you forever and ever. Remember? Him in a silly penguin suit. Her in a gossamer white dress by the simulated waterfall with holograms of waving willow trees in the background. Yes. Yes. He whispered. If the universe ends, so does forever. And without forever, there's nothing left of us. But what if this isn't real? What if this is just some junky dream? Does it matter? Does it matter more than what we had? We were real. I miss you, Jondi. Every day, every hour, every minute. Oh, God, I miss you. We loved as we lived sweetly and well. It was good, and it ended, as all things do. But one day, in another time and place, we will love again. Jondi's brow furrowed, the way it always did when she was perplexed by one of Tay's rambling treatises. Won't we? Or is this truly goodbye? Jondi's image disappeared. Tay screamed. No one paid any attention as he clambered to his feet. He couldn't lose Jondi, even if all he had were memories and a promise of another life's reunion. Even if it was just a tempt dream, he wanted the universe back. Come on, think, he panted. In millennia past, a tradition passed down from 32nd millennium to 32nd millennium. The spells had been spoken, the symbols painted. People, aliens, unimagined consciousnesses had used rituals to set the universe back to rights, and Tay had converted these rituals into equations for the computer. Tay stared at Baum. He was the only one unaffected by hallucinations. But maybe they weren't hallucinations. Maybe, protected as they were in a dome that contained the only reality, they were being affected by the only things that could touch them. Ray's and her shame, Freeloader and his hedonism, and himself with his guilt and grief. We're making reality, he whispered. Us, instead of concentrating on the symbols and words, we're wallowing in the depths of our dysfunctions. Nirvana. Baum said. T 
Tay squeezed his eyes shut and put his hands over his ears. He envisioned Freeloader the Ritualist, sane, calm, dressed, maintaining the computer operations like he always had in their simulations. He believed it. For Jondi, he believed it. He thought of Rays as she monitored readings and adjusted sensors, saw her fiddling with dials and buttons. The computer stopped its plaintive distress sequence. The hum of normal processing replaced the high-pitched beeps. Freeloader sat at a station, eyes fixed on the displays. Rays tapped queries into her console. In the viewer, a glimmer of light, no more than a speck, smoldered at the center of the blackness. As Tay watched, more spots of light began to emerge in a familiar pattern of stars and galaxies. The universe was coming back. that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Going a little late this week, so we're going to hold off on story feedback till next week and get right into this week's Drabblecast Kick-Ass Donor of the Week, Brian Holder. Brian currently lives in South Carolina in a house packed full of people and animals, and the situation seems to restrict and worsen his pack rat nature. He works in retail, but is getting his foot in the door of a sound engineering career. He likes constructing scale car and airplane models, as well as complex origami, and he's batting around 500, which means the Orioles could really use him right now. Thanks, Brian. You demand. Our 100-character TwitFix story winner this week is a new face in the forums, but his handle is really hard to say, so he immediately fits right in. Rev Tax. And this is one of my personal favorites, so if you're not following the Drabblecast on Twitter and you're not getting these, yada. Congrats, Rev Sleaze Tax. We hope you maintain your seat of power on the throne of 100-character stories. You all can submit yours, too, either by sending them into Drabblecast at yahoo.com or posting them in our discussion forums, a link to which you can find off of our main page, www.drabblecast.org. And hey, while you're at the page, why not take heed of the donation options conveniently made garish and in your face? If you like our show, you can help us out by donating once or subscribing for an auto payment of five bucks a month. We're hoping to bump our pay rate for feature stories in the near future, which would mean a general increase in the strength of stories we get submitted, and you can help us get there. Oh, and quick reminder, if you're going to DragonCon in Atlanta this weekend, drop us an email at drabblecast at yahoo.com letting us know, and we'll hook you up with a way to say hi. We're giving out shirts and kicking off the Super Animal Mega Beast Deathmatch podcast season three, and we'd love some FaceTime with you. Well, that's our show. The Drabblecast is produced under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means you can't change it or sell it without asking us, but you can share it with everybody you like all you want. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that it's because of you that God doesn't love me.
So that was the end of the universe, and yet we are all still here. I am here with Jimmy and Crystal, and we just listened to this story with you. Okay, so the first question that comes to my mind after listening to this is whether or not that was an encounter with God or a really bad acid trip. Hmm, I don't know. wasn't really clear. <laughs> was that the impression that you guys got, that he was on a drug trip? I didn't think he was on a drug trip, because I take everything literally. <laughs> That's true. We have established that you, you listen to it literally. I mean, I don't know. I didn't really feel like it mattered to the story, you know, whether it was nah. all real or all in his mind. It ends up being the same either way. You know, the moral of the story ends up being the same, I guess. Hmm. So what did you take to be the moral of the story? Oh, come back to me. <laughs> I, mean, I, I didn't think it was a moralistic story. It was a, it, it was a, it was just a story. It, it had a beginning, middle and end. Like, I, I guess I didn't, I wasn't looking for the moral. It's not the an episode of the A-Team, you know? It's got like, it's got like uh, a cool concept. It's got good side-loaded world world building, but like I didn't really feel like there was like a and and everything is what we make it or some kind of you know boil it down into a didacticism or something. I don't know. Yeah, I guess moral is the wrong uh, word for me to use. The point of the story, the fact that he needs to keep going, keep living life, even though his wife died and he blamed himself. That was the moral or the point of the story. And I think that's the same either way, whether this was entirely in his mind or whether he actually was on a ship that was trying to prevent the end of the universe. Either way, it's the, the message of the story it remains the same. I think that's fair. I mean, none of us have encountered the literal end of our universe, but a lot of people in our world encounter things like you know, struggling with drug addictions or, or things like that that might feel the same way or you have to commit to The death of a spouse. And, and, yeah. yeah, all those kinds of things. Well, what I was wondering is what what were they trying, what was the author trying to reference with the every 32,000 years? What was... that? This happens every 32,000 years. Apparently. Yeah, but is there is there supposed to have been a historical event that we would recognize as, as having been this reset of the universe or, or tearing apart of the universe that had to be... Fixed. I, I'm not aware of anything that's on a $32,000 or 32,000 year um, time scale. So I wouldn't know. No, I, I, I don't, don't I don't think, I think that if there was a weak point to this story, it was probably the central mythology premise, the whole like, so this is not a, a, an event that we have any kind of frame of reference to. It isn't reference exactly what happens to the rest of the world during this time. Do they, like, does the reset roll back time to when the problem happened and then go forward correctly? Or is there just a gap? Or, I mean, is, none of the the upper end of the logic is really explained. It's just that you got to do this special dance every 20 minutes or the universe explodes. Like, that's kind of the, or 32,000 years, or type in the numbers in the bunker on the island. <laughs> I mean, you know, we've seen this, this, this theme before of, you know, there's a, a thing that has to happen or the world breaks. Damn. Yeah, it Damn. yeah, it it very much reminded me of Nightfall by Asimov that they noticed a recurring pattern every x number of years and it, mm -hmm. eventually they figured out why this was and how to try to save the world. So I didn't know if that's what it was supposed to be referencing, but there that was on a different planet, so it made sense that there would be this repeating pattern, but since this is presumably supposed to be related to our universe, that part didn't make sense. But it was very specific in the number, 32,000 years. And they referenced dinosaurs, and they referenced, you know, Neanderthals. And so I was trying to figure out what they were going, what the author was going for in terms of 
historical references because it seems like that was intended. I think it might have just been a random number, but I do love that they were aware that, okay, before people who was doing this, well, it must have been the dinosaurs. <laughs> it must have been some, like somebody must have been doing this because the universe still exists. So at some point in time, some creature out there was stomping on the ground in a protected circle of some kind. So Jimmy, what did you think were the strengths of the story? Um, I think the, some of the world building, I don't know when this was published, um, but you know, the kind of like cyberpunk setting for the main character. So like that was interesting. I thought the spell on the computer guy, well, I forgot what they called him, but I thought that was interesting. Um, I think the enforcer guy was kind of like a little bit of a stereotype, like a big guy who's very zen. <laughs> yeah, they never really just went into that about how he was able to resist the hallucinations and and the effects of the end of the universe. I guess he just didn't have any dysfunction. He said, uh, oh, Bomb's resisted it. But it was very obvious that Bomb was not resisting it. And he was in some kind of weird, like, Nirvana mm. hallucination. So his, his uh, dysfunction didn't cause him to go, you know, to act out. He was just sort of kept it inside, I guess. Yeah, I, well, he acted out by preventing the guy from doing anything for a while. Like, I mean... He was just in a Zen hallucination, which would cause him to be a Zen person. Mm. It was uh. very weird. I, I, it was very strange that they had that line where he didn't think his coworker or whatever was <laughs> was uh, under some kind of hallucination because it was clear that he was. So mm. I was a little bit confused by yeah, that. I guess I took that more literally because I was like, oh, yeah, he's not affected. And I wonder no. why that is. Oh. <laughs> well, he was in a meditative state, right? He kept saying nirvana. So yeah. he's in some kind of Buddhist mentality. Yeah. That's... But still able to interact with what's going on yeah. around him and, I guess, aware enough of his surroundings. Unlike, you know, Ray's, who was hallucinating, and, and Tay, the main character, who was also hallucinating. You know, they seem to not be quite as connected to reality, whereas... I, well, he wasn't restarting the machine like he was asked to do. Like, he, he could have solved the problem and didn't. I think they were all affected. It's... I think the strong points of the story for me were the images of the various crew members losing their minds and how they were all reacting differently and what their what each of their respective dysfunctions were and especially the hallucinations that Tay was seeing. Um, those were very vivid to me and very disturbing and you know I thought that was I thought the imagery was really cool. I liked the overall feeling that I got from it. I liked how it ended and there was, you know, you, it's definitely a like, you know, the airlock is opening. I got to run to hit the buttons or whatever. And like that kind of, that kind of space story. And then he figures out a second solution, which I thought was pretty novel. So I always differentiate the message to the actor, the, the person in the story and the message to the reader. And I think that there is a, there's a dissonance there for Tay who has lived his life and he's been in this world of darkness and drug use and he's finally found like a redeeming path and then he kind of he doesn't get affected very much by the uh, hallucinations he sees them but he isn't like he doesn't internalize them and believe them Potentially, he realizes that they're hallucinations yeah. yeah which maybe is because he's been doing hallucinogens or something his whole life i mean i kind of got that they might have even recruited him because of that. We have mm -hmm. no knowledge of who set this up. But but, but his motivation to keep going makes sense to me because that's 
his motivation. He's the guy that has got to do it, and that's what gets him through it. It's not sheer perseverance. It's I've got to do, do something, and that gives him the inspiration to make the solution. The solution here wasn't love. It was that everyone here is creating their own reality. And he was like, oh, I, I take a step back. I look at everyone around me and look what's happening. Oh, well, then because there's nothing out there, the reality is being created and thus I can do it. And I just have to like get my head in the game and actually think about what there should be. Um, so I think that's really what, what, what the moral was that it, when there's no universe outside that reality is grasping for anything else agent to push it around. I don't know. That was what I took away. Not that love will save us because it wasn't. He that was just what got him to like, you know, get get in his head, you know, get his head straight. I guess that's true. And then and then it was more him just imagining everything going well and as it should be that turned it around and caused everything to actually be saved. If you think about it, this is for me is an idea story. It's an idea of this group trying to do the ritual through computers and make it out and then something goes wrong that's a very like asimovian very like like kind of setup that you would see in the golden age and then it just had some more character development some of which involved emotions so <laughs> i don't know like i didn't get it that it was an emotional story i got that it was not an emotional story it was an idea story like a robot story almost mm. like just very logic and it just didn't flesh out all the edges yeah and i guess for me i i wish that the author had talked a little bit more about the sort of the backstory of this situation of how um as you said how the uh group got set up why they were chosen how they decided to you know put a bubble on top of a mountain and program some dance moves into the computer <laughs> um <laughs> you know it sounds very it sounds very uh outlandish and a little bit silly to me but i think that with a good backstory it would be it would be totally believable but there just wasn't that so we just had to believe like okay there are these magic dance moves that the dinosaurs did and then now this <laughs> the and dinosaurs now... part was a little tough i mean he was conjecturing to be fair that yeah. was the uneducated non-topic expert of the mission very obviously <laughs> conjecturing about what how he thought this might have worked in the past he probably is wrong in the in the universe that we're but in. if he's but if he's been part of this mission then you'd think he'd have at least some knowledge of you know he talked about programming the the dance moves and the chants and all that into the computer but he can't know if the dinosaurs did no but he even had if some, he's the guy who programmed the computer <laughs> but he had some knowledge of how they uh first of all figured out what these what these dance moves are and then I guess translated that into a computer, so he had some knowledge, and so I don't think his his dinosaur conjecture was completely unfounded. Like he has more knowledge of it than we do, but we just don't get to see that. So I would have liked a little bit more of that aspect of the story, and not so much of the like, oh, my wife is dead, and I blame myself. <laughs> well, I think that's where the thirty two thousand years really makes a difference. If this was something that happened every three thousand years, you could see a chain of uh, of the information being passed more easily, but every thirty-two thousand years, that's such a long time. Yeah. Like maybe the pyramids were a, a part of this or something. But yeah, yeah thirty-two thousand years ago, yeah. there wouldn't be. There's any... nothing. There's very little record of anything from that time. That's yeah. a long, long, long time ago. 
But it sounded like, you know, he said he hypothesized aliens doing this before the dinosaurs, which fills in a lot of gaps because it might give, you know, it might give evidence to him or it might help him if he believes that aliens did exist. And then that would explain possibly how the living creatures on the planet Earth were able to do these things. They might have been influenced by the aliens mm. or implanted by I mean, you could just make up some backstory to fill in. But it's Again, we're talking about the story too much because now even more things are opening in my mind. So one of them is, okay, so let's say, let's take my initial hypothesis. This is being funded by some kind of like group that thinks this is real. So clearly at least one of the members of the team was not convinced because he was like, oh, it's real. I didn't really think it would, it would be real. So that's like one facet of it. But also let's say you formed a cult or a interest group around this and you had the source material that was needed to save the world why would you install that in windows <laughs> like at the end of the day if it works every thirty-two thousand years why would you be like let's make a computer version of this and not just be like let's get some pig blood drip it in a circle <laughs> yeah. and like put our hands up like that, i feel like that's what they would have done that's, that's a primitive way to do it that might be your preference you know uh -huh. you might enjoy the pig's blood <laughs> is there like an aesthetics element to this it's like oh well we're in the era of, of, of that's AI. not sanitary maybe <laughs> <laughs> like PETA was running this you and they're know, like they well we can't have, use pig's blood they might have had an influence it's possible <laughs> or maybe you know get more than four people in the entire world to be part of this so that if some of them go crazy at least some of them will still well, they were, they were very clearly the mission specialists. Like, it's like a NASA command capsule. Like, a lot of people are involved putting them in space, but there's there's four people strapped into the chairs. But the dinosaurs didn't have mission command specialists. <laughs> but maybe the circle only contained four dinosaurs. That's what, I, assumed, I assumed that that was actually the case, that it had to happen on this spot. Oh. I mean, that was they made, they made that a, a thing. They wouldn't put it on this mountain unless <laughs> the mountain was an important closer spot. closer to space. So was this God that was appearing to these people? Because, no. But now you said you like to take things literally in the story and, and Reyes thought it was God. And yeah, Reyes thought it was Bomber God. Bomber thought it was Nirvana, which is, you know, again, sort of the appearance of something supernatural. Oh, you're right. You've logicked me into having <laughs> believed that when I heard the story. No, I don't, I don't think it was God because I, I think it was a giant scary object and for like you know thousands of years humans are good at looking at giant scary objects and calling them god so that doesn't necessarily make me think oh well then obviously they're right well also it it very clearly emphasized how religious she was i mean she had crucifixes in her hair um and the author carefully pointed out that it wasn't just a fashion statement it was in fact out of piety and um you know rays seemed to be very focused on religion on god so it, it makes sense to me that as they're each having these hallucinations she would interpret it as god but i don't think that it was meant to necessarily actually be god i think it was just that that was her that was her view of it because she was religious by nature yeah i don't know what they didn't really like even spend any time on what the thing was I mean, it was a big tentacle-ish blob, right? Blackness spreading out across the stars. I almost, again, feel like they were pulling from tropes here because it was very, you know, the, the, the darkness that was spreading across the galaxy is very, like, oh, look at the fifth element is a good example where it's this The never-ending story. Never-ending story. 
the nothing. Uh, there's a bunch of uh, other stories. The the um, the wrinkle in time. Ah, yeah. 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 Uh, so you want to be a magician series for kids? Uh, had a like kind of antagonist, dark like the enemy kind of a thing. Say its name, it gains power. Kind of again, like kind of the the anti matter. The of, spreading yeah. of nothing of of darkness yeah. and. and... I almost had a, a, an image of, of a sort of Lovecraft thing where every 32,000 years, Cthulhu like kind of breaks free some of the chains and they have to bind him back up again somehow. Yeah, definitely like, Elder God or thing that doesn't is beyond caring about us is very cosmic horror. Yeah. Yeah, although it seemed to me to be very much not sentient. Like there was just some glitch in the universe and it wasn't a... It wasn't an intentional thing. It was just that the fabric of the universe starts tearing apart every 32,000 years. So that's just the nature of the universe. Maybe it's a, like a cosmic cow that's like <laughs> comes out and just starts grazing. Munching. And, it's munching and on the universe. What they're doing is they're just turning back on the electric fence. <laughs> you know, like it, it could be sentient, but not, yeah. uh, or it could be conscious, but not sentient or something. And yeah. Yeah, why does it have to be God? Why can't it be a cow? That's well, what I'm saying. But that, but that's what everyone thought. I mean, everybody looked at it and thought, that's God, that's Nirvana. They identified it that way. I think two of the characters did. You know, the one who was very religious, and we don't really know enough about Bomb to really say what his motivations were, but I think that was also just the way he interpreted it. But the other guy... He thought it was the devil. Freeloader thought it was the devil or the enemy. The great destroyer, the deceiver. It's very, uh, very the devil, very the antichrist or whatever. Hmm, that's true. Okay, so three out of the four characters. So why did Tay not seem to think of it as as God? Maybe he wasn't religious. Mm. Everyone else might have been. I mean, you know, religious hallucinations are a very common symptom in like advanced psychiatric hallucination. Like seeing God, thinking God is talking to you. I mean, that's super, super common. Uh, we for some reason just that's our go-to for like mm -hmm. mental disease so i don't know it just seems like this was just turning on that system yeah because tay only saw very you know identifiable you know he saw people from his past um even though they were disfigured in very various ways he didn't see anything sort of uh supernatural or religious at all so i guess it's just a difference in in background I, I like the story because I like ensemble stories. It's reminded me a lot of the recent Guardians of the Galaxy movie where each of the characters, while not super deeply fleshed out, were interesting. They each were interesting. Um, they were a little tropey, but they were also still kind of, I don't know, I thought that they were kind of interesting and unique in their own way. The, the, the guy with the metal fingers who interacts with computers, pretty neat. The bomb character is the the woman with the with the hair and the and the and you know she's i, I, just, I just thought they ought to have had a cool like background and pulling those that group together and seeing how they all go crazy and then i enjoyed the the solution to the riddle i think that that was good so i mean overall it worked for me that's it have a good day